0: Take your Bibles. Turn to Mark chapter ten. I was supposed to get to preach from this text back in October, uh, September, end of September, uh, when my family got stuck in Chicago uh, at the airport, storm, hotel, all that fun stuff, and we ended up stuck over an extra weekend when we were gone. And then, uh, then it was postponed until the start of November. But then we had people preaching here through October, and Danny was like, is it okay if I preach those two Sundays? And So I've had like eight weeks in this passage, um, which in part is why I have no notes this morning, because there's so many things going on in my head, and I've been under the weight of this text so much that it's become near and dear to my heart, and um, I'm just going to trust the Lord and all that uh, as, as we open it today. There is, a power, there is a plan, okay? Some of you are like, no plan! <laughs> Panic! Right? My wife doesn't know how to handle it when I don't have a plan. But, uh, there is a plan. Um, but man, this has become a rich text to me, uh, and I hope that it will be challenging and encouraging to you too. Let's pray, and then we'll dive in together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you keep its truth on top of our hearts as long as you need to, and God, I know in my own heart this, this passage has been on top of my life for a long time now, and I, I, I know in part that's because I needed it to sit there. And so I just pray that these truths would, would connect into our hearts by Your Spirit and that You would change us through them. or that You would, would confront us, challenge us, correct us. But as Your Word perfectly does, would You also comfort us and encourage us and give us help for even the hours and days and weeks that lie ahead. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Have you ever been baffled? Right, Being baffled can be good or bad. Um, Sometimes you apply for something that you think you could never get. And even though in your head there's no way that this should work out, it does. And you're just like happily baffled, you're pleasantly baffled by something. Sometimes you're negatively baffled, because you, you tried to line it all out. You planned out the job. You planned out the timing. You, you got it all set up, and then it just falls apart. And, and when we're baffled, at some point, we kind of throw our hands up in the air and go, how did that happen? I mean, again, sometimes it's good. <laughs> and Sometimes it's bad. I've baffled my dad twice recently um, I, within the last few years. One, uh, one time I bought a Jeep. You say, why did that baffle your dad? Well, when I was 16... My dad tried to teach me how to drive a manual transmission vehicle. He had one at the time, a little Honda Accord Coupe. I remember it. It was like dark green. And when I was first learning to drive, he was like, you know what would be really good? If I teach him to drive on a stick because then he can really learn. Only I was terrible. I mean, I was so bad, and this is not a joke or exaggeration. I was so bad that my dad sold the car. He said, this is not working. And so he taught me how to drive on automatic transmission praise god for that it probably saved our relationship (laughs) but then a few years ago when we were living in colorado we needed a round town car and i was at one of the local dealerships and talking to a guy and i said here's what i'm looking for here's the price range he goes i have the perfect car for you he goes there's this amazing little jeep wrangler that an older couple on a ranch owned and they just putzed around on the ranch with this jeep wrangler if you've lived in the mountains of colorado like jeeps are cool and subarus those two things and, uh, so he, and he showed it to me. It was unbelievable. It was in 1991, so it was like 24 years old when I bought it. It had 47,000 miles on it in 24 years. We're pretty sure the top had never been off it. The driver's seat had some wear, but the rest of the car looked like nobody had even sat in it. It was, it was an unbelievable survivor. And he told me the story, and he showed me the Jeep, and he told me the price, and I called a friend of mine who was a car guy about it, and my friend goes, Buy it! <laughs> yesterday. (laughs) How much does he want for it? I told him, he goes, buy it, really buy it. And the guy goes, it is a stick shift. I'm like, oh, (laughs) but I loved it. So I said, well, here's the deal. I can't drive a stick, but if you take, this is the the guy, the salesman, if you take me on a test drive, then that would be great. So that's what happened. He took me on a test drive. Oh, and my friend who's the car guy that I called, I said, can you teach me to drive a stick? He goes, oh yeah, sure. It's no problem. Like, all right. So a guy took me on a test drive. It was just like he described it. car was amazing. And I bought it. I called my dad. I said, hey, dad, do you think I could ever learn to drive a stick? <laughs> no joke. He goes, nope. <laughs> I go, well, I just bought one. <laughs> he goes, well, good luck with that. So I went down to pick it up with my friend, paid for it. He drove it back home. And then he gave me like an hour or two of lessons, and I drove it to work the next day. I nearly died a couple times, but it was great. But to my dad, he was like, what is my son thinking? The other thing that baffled my dad, I remember when we moved to Colorado, was that anyone would give me a job. Because I had training as a pastor, and now I wanted to transition and help a little church and go into the business world. And I remember a little architecture firm that hired me as their office manager, and they only offered me $35,000, which in that part of the country is not a living wage. But I called my dad and I said, Dad, should I negotiate? Should I see if they'll give me 40?" dollars And he goes, nope, take the job. <laughs> he goes, I'm being honest with you, I wouldn't have hired you anyway. He goes, so if they're, if they're going to give you a chance with your background and your resume, take it, take it now. right?" I think we've all been at those places in life where we're baffled. And the reality is that as we come to Mark chapter 10, we read a baffling story from the life of Jesus. And here's why it's baffling. The whole Gospel of Mark has been filled with stories of Jesus confronting a desperate need and as a loving and powerful Savior, he's met the need. And he's met it abundantly, like this is just happening over and over and over again in the Gospel of Mark. Flip back with me to Mark chapter 1. We're not going to go through the previous nine chapters, but I just want you to see this. In Mark chapter 1, by the way, if you're looking at one of the Bibles that's in our chairs in front of us, this is page 836. Mark chapter 1, Jesus meets this first person who's demon-possessed, right? And in verse 23, it says this, And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And the man cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. So Jesus meets a man overcome by a demon, and he casts out the demon. And even that man's accusation is actually, in a way, a desperate cry for help. Look over at verse 40 of chapter 1. And a leper came to him, imploring him, begging him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was clean. In chapter 2, Jesus heals a man that's paralyzed, and the situation is so desperate that his friends couldn't get to Jesus, so they tore the roof off a house. To get this guy inside to see Jesus. Like that's how desperate the need was. And Jesus heals this man and forgives his sins. You can just keep turning, right, through this book. In chapter 3, he heals a man with a withered hand. In chapter 4, he starts to teach people. But then at the end of chapter 4, the disciples are in a boat and there's a massive storm. And look at verse 38. Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. This is chapter 4, verse 38. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. Another desperate need and another uh, salvation from Jesus. He saves the people in their desperate need. Chapter 5 is a man filled with demons. Verse 7, he cries out to Jesus in a loud voice. And Jesus heals him. In verse 23, there's a man whose little daughter, it says, is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Then there's a woman before that, even, before Jesus even heals that daughter, there's a woman who has an issue in her blood that she's been trying to deal with for years and has exhausted all her resources. There's another desperate need, and she just touches Jesus' clothes and he heals her. And then he heals this daughter of this man at the end of chapter 5. In chapter 6, he feeds 5,000 people who are starving hungry. In chapter 7, verse 25, a woman comes to him, but immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Verse 29 says, for this statement you may go your way, Jesus says, the demon has left your daughter. At the end of chapter 7, he heals a man as well, deaf and mute, In chapter 80, feeds the 4,000 because they're starving hungry. At the end of chapter 8, in verse 22, some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And Jesus gives the man his sight. In chapter 9, there's a man who has a son who's demon-possessed as well, in verse 17 and 18. Like, this is just the pattern of Jesus' life. People come with desperate needs. He's a loving Savior, and he abundantly heals and helps I mean, that's what Jesus does. And isn't it comforting and encouraging that that's what he does today? Like, Jesus welcomes your pain, he welcomes you in your helplessness, he welcomes you in your grief, he welcomes you just to come and beg for his help. And so, when we come to chapter 10, verse 17, we're in this mode of this is what happens when someone comes to Jesus. But look at this story, right? In fact, this is a slide from the last, one of the last times I preached about Jesus healing people. And I pulled this slide directly from that time. Everywhere, everyone, every need, and Jesus was there. But then we come to Mark chapter 10, right where we are, and look at verse 17. And as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And if we're tracking with Jesus, we're like, oh, this is going to go great. This is going to be a story that's so encouraging and helpful to us. But look down at verse 22. Disheartened by what Jesus said, the man went away sorrowful. And this, this reality just like rattles the cage of the disciples. They're totally like, what is going on here? Look at verse 26. And they, Jesus' disciples, were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? We have a desperate need, a loving Savior, and we actually have no help. And the man going away in sorrow. It's almost like the record scratches a little bit. And we kind of go, what happened? But do you know that as we come to these moments, there's actually great instructive truth for us? And so that's why as I think about this passage, I want us to think about this idea. How does it happen that we come to a story when Jesus can't help? Now some of you are already like, ah! (laughs) I don't want you to think in terms of Jesus' ability. Jesus has all power in heaven and earth. He has all ability. But the reality is, there are times, and I would say it this way from the story, there are people that Jesus can't help. And that ought to really make us pause and say, am I that kind of person? Because this story doesn't end well. And yet, Jesus hasn't changed. So what can we learn together? Let's look at the first part of this story, Mark 10, verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, by the way, this comes out of left field, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And the man said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. That's quite a statement. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. That's an important phrase. And said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Don't we see here? We see a desperate need and a loving Savior, although you'll notice that I put that We're desperate in quotes. Some of you are very perceptive. You're already all over that. Some of you are like, oh, that was different about that slide. The man comes to him, right? The verses say he ran to him. He kneels before him. And he says to him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There's an urgent need. And the man asks an eternal question. Doesn't that seem desperate? Doesn't that seem to be, I need help from you, Jesus? The other accounts of this story, by the way, three of the, the books about the life of Jesus recall this story, so it was a powerful moment even for Jesus' followers. They talk about the urgency with which he ran and, and begged and asked, like, there was something bothering this man's soul. The, the stories also tell us that he was actually a respected, influential, um, powerful man, A man who would have been seen by his society as good. He was respected in the churches of his day. He was successful in his business ventures. He had a lot of things going for him. But I think it's interesting here that you do have a man who gets that he's missing something. And this is a great reminder to us that without Jesus, everyone in the world is missing something. That's why we talk about the idea that there's a a God-sized hole in the heart of every person. You can be someone that the world would see as good, someone who they would see as successful, someone that your peers would even respect and nominate for a position of importance. But without Jesus, there's something missing. And this man knows it. And so he comes to Jesus. And I love the phrase that we shouldn't miss about Jesus, right? Verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Jesus wasn't bothered by this man. He wasn't irritated. He didn't dismiss him. He actually looked at him with compassion. And this is the heart of Jesus. Can I tell you this? This is Jesus' heart for you. He looks at you with love and compassion. He sees you in your need. He understands your pain. He looks at you with love, just like he looked at this man. He wanted to help. But Jesus takes a very different direction than we would expect in this story. Because Jesus starts to peel back the onion of this man's life. And he gets an unexpected answer, right? What's the man's question? the man says to him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So this is not complicated. This is basic English. What was Jesus asking for help with? What was this man hoping Jesus would give him an answer about? Eternal life. Good. You all pass, right? So this man knows what he's asking for. I'm respected, I'm good, I'm successful, but something's missing to having eternal life. Can you help me get that? Find that. Can you answer that? And Jesus, as he sometimes does in conversations with people, he just makes like a crazy left turn. And what does he say? He says nothing about eternal life out of the gate, right? He looks at the man and he says, why do you call me good? Was that the point of the man's question? No, that was like just like a modifier that he put with Jesus, a, an adjective to, to be kind to Jesus. Good teacher. But what does Jesus know? Jesus knows our hearts. And so he starts to peel back the layers. You know, as people, we don't know people's hearts. Now, over time, the fruit of a life will demonstrate how someone's heart is. But when someone walks through that door for the first time, and they say, man, I'm so excited to be here today. I just want to worship God and learn from his word. You know what my reaction is as a pastor? That's great. You know what I can't see? What's going on? But Jesus knew. And so Jesus goes right to this man's heart. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Where's that list coming from? Right out of the Ten Commandments. One of the simplest lists of what God demands of human behavior. But do you know what happens if you're an honest human being about that list? How many of you lie? Okay, let's try that again. How many of you, how many of you shade the truth to make yourself look better? You exaggerate, you, how many of us lie? Great. How many of us didn't honor our mother and father during the course of our life? Yeah, I got some teenagers who are like, "Uh uh-huh, living that right now. (laughs) How many of us have taken advantage of other people? We've stolen, we've defrauded, we've done that with our boss. We've done that in our homes, I think probably in this room, um, my guess is, I could be wrong, that no one's killed anyone. But Jesus said the heart of killing is hatred. I think we've all been in situations where, at least for some period of time, we've hated someone else. Even if you haven't committed adultery or been immoral, you've had those thoughts. Like This simple list, it just starts to like open us up to the way we really are, doesn't it? But how does this man respond to Jesus' question? He says, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. You know what he just said? I'm actually a pretty good guy. He defended himself. And I don't know why. Maybe he genuinely believed that about himself. Maybe he had tried to live a pattern of life that was moral. Maybe he was so self-deceived that he actually had him, but that's what he believed. Maybe he was trying to defend his reputation. I don't know why he answered like this, but his, his answer tells us something revealing, and that's exactly what Jesus is doing. You know what it tells us that's revealing? He thought he was good enough without Jesus. It's Thanksgiving time, so we're uh, kind of all in line for a little Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown's Thanksgiving, Charlie Brown's meager Christmas tree, it's all coming our way. And I was thinking about what God says about us in our sin. I was thinking about Romans that says that we all fall short of the glory of God. You know what that means? It means we all miss the football. Only God's not pulling out the football. It's right there. We just miss it. I mean, if we were, we were drawing a, a comparison of trying to jump across the Grand Canyon, it's like we all run really hard and we jump 10 feet. We just don't, we, none of us gets to the level of life that matches up with the glory of God. We fall short. But it's not just that. Romans 3.10 tells us there's not one of us who's righteous. Our mouths are full of sinful activity. Our lives are full of sinful behavior. We're just all helpless sinners. We're like the leper and the paralyzed guy, and we're like these people who can't, they can't take care of themselves. We're, we're full of dirt, and I know Pigpen is kind of cute, but uh, there's a picture of my brother when we were kids at my grandparents' house, and we played in their dirt pile all day, and there's like this dirty, you know, I don't know how old he was, four-year-old, five-year-old. It's kind of cute, right? But when we talk about our sin, it's not cute. It's actually pretty ugly. When you peel back the thoughts of our heart, the actions of our lives, the words of our mouth, we're all desperate sinners. And you know what this man thought? This man thought he was good enough. He was actually pretty good. And can I tell you, there are people all around this world who think they're going to get to God because they've looked at all the people around them and looked at their own life and said, actually, compared to everybody else, I'm a pretty good person. And God says, that's not the standard. I'm the standard. And when you compare yourself to the God of the universe and his standard of holiness, you, we cry out like Isaiah, we're completely undone. But it wasn't just that this man thought he was good enough. He also thought he had enough. He was satisfied enough. Look at verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus said to him, give it all up and come follow me. Had Jesus said this before? Yeah. He'd said it to some fishermen, hadn't he? James and John and Peter and Andrew, he said, leave your nets and follow me. And what did they do? They did it. That's amazing. They they dropped their livelihoods and everything they had, and they just followed Jesus. They gave it up. He said this to Matthew, the tax, tax collector, and Matthew left his lucrative business and followed Jesus. And now he says it to this man. And here's what we know about this man, don't we? He had lots of stuff. In fact, verse 22 says that's why he went away. He had great possessions this is the person I think about when I think about someone with great possessions. Some of you don't know who that is. That's Richard Branson. He owns uh, about 400 companies. Um, one of the most famous one is probably Virgin Atlantic, the airline, and then a bunch of subsidiary companies. And every picture I see of Richard Branson looks like this. He's got like white flowing hair. He seems completely joyful and satisfied. I was reading a little article on Business Insider on him last night and it had a picture of his island. There's an island that he purchased in the British Isles. There's like these pictures of him in exotic, you know, Indian garb sitting, you know, it's just all pristine. It's like beautiful women, perfect life, satisfaction. Now he's only got four billion dollars, three point nine, I think, to be exact. But I think once you get to a B, it really doesn't matter. Once you leave, I think even if you get to an M, it's pretty good, right? <laughs> Some of you are like, I take hundred grand, <laughs> twenty grand. Keep on coming, I'll take something. He doesn't have, you know, Jeff Bezos or um, uh, Bill Gates money. They're hundred billion dollars, so he's he's kind of small potatoes in that world. But he seems to have enough to do what he wants and be fully satisfied. And do you know that's the man we meet here? He's got enough. He's certainly got enough that he doesn't want to leave it if that's what it costs to follow Jesus. And can I talk to all of us in the room today? Most of you don't have a lot of zeros in your bank account right now. But we all have things that we're tempted to find our satisfaction in other than Jesus. And if we're honest, some of us even have things or people that we would really struggle if Jesus said, I want you, and you have to be okay to leave them. I mean, it's easy to find satisfaction in your relationships, isn't it? And if following Jesus meant you were going to lose some of those relationships, I mean, Jesus is going to say this at the end of the chapter, that you may lose people you love to follow me. And some of us have stuff that's really precious to us. And if following Jesus meant we needed to downsize our home, I remember this, when we first moved into the valley, the Millers were downsizing. I don't think we'd been here two weeks. They bought a house and they moved here from Indiana To just help however they could. Uh, And so they had bought a house. They were settling in. Simeon had a job that he thought was going to go a certain way, and it changed, and he got a new job. And they just came to this reality that we're going to have to downsize. And so I remember, before I really knew the Millers, being part of this moving team where they went from a house to a not house. A townhome, by the way, is a not house, (laughs) right? It's a place where you share walls. Your neighbors are a little closer than you would like them to be. I don't know how much the square footage change was, but I know from moving the stuff, there was more in the first place than there was in the second place. But man, we can become attached to homes. We can become attached to experiences. I mean, if following Jesus meant that you couldn't go on those vacations, if it meant that you were shopping at Savers instead of... If following Jesus meant a real life, cost. And for many of you, it has. You feel this. It's the cost of following Jesus. But there's this great thing that Jesus shares with us. It's found in Matthew 13. He says this, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has and buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is what Jesus offers. Like, this is what the man asked for. The man said, how can I have eternal life? And Jesus said, leave your stuff and follow. Have me. Have the kingdom of heaven that God offers. But that means you have to be okay to repent of your sin own your sin, to admit your sin, to confess you. You have to be okay to be honest about your sin in order to follow me. And you have to be okay to let everything go to follow me. And you know why Jesus can't help a lot of people? Because in their mind, they're good enough and they just need a little help from Jesus. Or they got enough and they're not willing to give it up for Jesus. And even if you've become a follower of Jesus, isn't your heart pulled back to those same temptations? As you follow him, you start to feel better about how you're doing. As you follow him, you're tempted to become satisfied in other things. So, what does Jesus say? Jesus answers. He gives a dire warning and some deep comfort. Look at this. And Jesus, this is back in Mark 10, verse 23. And Jesus looked around. And said to his disciples, who right now are like, what is going on? How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And in our hearts we say, but it would be nice. And the disciples were amazed at his words. And Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle Than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Let those words sink in. Wealth is not necessarily the blessing that you think it would be. Because I'll tell you, when you're sitting with very few zeros in your bank account, you think life would be a lot better with more zeros. But Jesus is like warning (laughs) that's not how it works. Why? Because wealth is inherently deceptive. What does it tell you? If you have enough of me, you can be satisfied. And it lies. The brats are here today and I'm good friends with them, so I'm going to embarrass them a little. Is that okay? Now I already did, so you can't. So I'm thankful to have them here today. But Clinton is a senior. Right? And so so what are you deciding your junior senior year of life? What do I want to do next? What do I think God wants me to do with my life? And what are all the temptations of this world telling you? Chase a career that you think will satisfy you. And we would all be lying, except probably teachers. We would all be lying if we said that money wasn't a significant part of that. Because if we're not careful, we we listen to the lie that says wealth will satisfy you. And that's why I see the pictures of Richard Branson. I'm like, I knew it would. (laughs) But you know what I don't see? I don't see the rest of his life. And here's the super deceptiveness of wealth. It can actually feel satisfying for a long, 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 long time until the floor drops out. And for some people, the floor may not drop out until they see God. They may have everything they need to satisfy them. And one day they're going to find out it wasn't true. What can a man give in exchange for his soul? And so Jesus says, don't believe that lie. Don't chase it. It lies to you. And I would love to tell you how close these verses hit home to my life. Because they're true. Verse 26. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? I mean, here they looked at a man who seemed to have it all and came to Jesus to ask for eternal life, and he walked away. And they thought, if that guy, who's a good guy, who's a religious leader, who's got wealth, who he, if he comes to Jesus and he can't be saved, then who can be saved? And Jesus offers comfort. He does it in two ways. First, he says to them, Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible. Nobody gets forgiveness of their sins. Nobody's saved. Nobody comes to Jesus because there was a good human scheme to get them there. God is the one who saves. Can I tell you today, if God is is reaching into your heart, and if he is, is convicting you and exposing to you that you're a sinner, and that this life doesn't satisfy without him. And that Jesus came and died for your sin and rose again to pay for your sin and you can have forgiveness and eternal life in him, that is an act of almighty God in your soul. Don't walk away sorrowful like this guy did. You say but it might cost me. It not might cost you, it will cost you. You say but I feel pretty good about myself. You're not. Me either. I mean, aren't you glad that somebody can't watch a video of your thoughts? Can we all just agree on that? You say, but you're a pastor. You probably have God thoughts all the time. Nope. Nope. Well, you're a pastor. You probably have a wah marriage. Nope. Nope. You probably, you probably teach Jesus to your son in those moments of anger and hardship and repeated disobedience and potty training regression and... Nope! When God uses His Word and His Spirit to reveal your sin and show you a Savior, that is an act that only He can do. It is impossible with people. And then... Peter, as he always does, has another question. And Peter began to say to him, what about us? See, here's humility in action. There's a man who wouldn't leave things and follow you, but what about us? Peter says, see, we have left everything and followed you. And he was right. They had. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house to townhome, to double-wide trailer, been there, or brothers, Hmm. or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or lands. That's the cost. Don't come to Jesus if you just want a little extra from him to get you across the finish line to God. Come to Jesus because you're willing for him to have everything, including the things most precious to you. You say, You mean he might take my business? He might. You say, I might get poorer for following Jesus? You probably will. You say, but those people that I love, love them, but don't love them more than Jesus. Because you will gain the whole world. You will gain all the relationships you treasure, and you may lose your soul. But there will be lots of people at my funeral, Mm -hmm. and you'll stand before God. That day is coming for every single one of us who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. And I can tell you that I don't fully understand how this phrase works. Because I want to say, like, where are my houses? And where are my lands? But can I tell you something cool? God has brought into my life a lot more mothers and sisters and brothers But look at what Jesus tucks in here with persecutions. Yep, that's true. And that person will receive in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. We don't have to worry about being first, we don't have to worry about having it all, we don't have to worry about being good enough or having enough? Because if you have Jesus, that's what He offers. Can I just ask you three easy questions? They're easy but hard. Are you good enough or satisfied enough without Jesus? Jesus is saying to you, come to me as a helpless sinner Come to me as someone who knows nothing and this life satisfies. Turn from your sin, ask me to be your savior, and I will. I'll release the burden you've been carrying. Maybe today you need Jesus' serious warning about the danger of wealth. It seems to promise everything you could possibly want, but it actually makes it very hard to treasure Jesus and have Jesus and ultimately to have eternal life. And then, I don't even know if this is a do you struggle, since we struggle with the cost of following Jesus. Do we need this comfort this morning? That there is a reward for those who follow Jesus, and there's salvation that is impossible with man, but possible with God. I just want to plead with you. If you've never come to the place Where you bowed your knee before Jesus. This man bowed his knee in a way to ask a question. But when it really came to him giving Jesus his heart and turning over his life to Jesus, he went the other way. He walked away. If you've never actually bowed your knee before Jesus and said, I'm a sinner and I need you to be my savior, don't wait. Revelation 3.20 says it this way. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. Jesus is standing at the door of your life. But there are some people who will walk away. In all likelihood, it's driven by the fact that they think they're good enough or they think they have enough without him. And when that happens, Jesus can't help you. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that it really does cut to our hearts. Show us who we are. Oh God, I know why you've had this on my heart because I do think I'm good enough at times, often. I do search for satisfaction in things other than you. And I need the warning that money won't fix things. And I need the assurance that God has saved me in Christ. And that he does see the cost that it will all be worth it in the end that giving up my life is better than trying to save it so god i pray for anyone gathered in this room who has never asked jesus to be their savior never given their life up to him that maybe even today they would do that and for those of us who have would you help us to continue to follow you And not to chase the rabbit trails that don't satisfy. And not to believe that we're good enough without you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.